Long Reads is brought to you in association with Haymarket Books. One Haymarket book you might enjoy is Breaking the Impasse, Electoral Politics, Mass Action and the New Socialist Movement in the United States by Kim Moody. Moody looks at the factors that have shaped the rise of a new left-wing movement in the US and discusses the election campaigns of socialist politicians like Bernie Sanders. You can find Breaking the Impasse at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK will receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name is Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. For almost 50 years, Portugal was ruled by a right-wing dictatorship. There was a military coup against Portuguese democracy in 1926. Antonio Salazar became the leader of the so-called Estado Novo in the same year Franklin Roosevelt entered the White House. His successor, Marcelo Caetano, was still in power when Richard Nixon was re-elected four decades later. The tides of European history had left the Estado Novo fully intact. Then a song began playing on the radio. This melancholy ballad about lost love was Portugal's entry for the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974. It came joint last, with just three points. Sweden's ABBA took the crown that year with their breakthrough hit Waterloo. But the song by Paolo de Carvalho found a different way to secure immortality. On the evening of April 24th, just a few weeks after Eurovision, it was the musical cue for a revolution. A group of junior army officers made a plan to overthrow the dictatorship. They chose the song as a coded signal to be played over the radio so their supporters would know when to move. The Carnation Revolution brought down the Estado Novo and kick-started a period of intense political upheaval. Its legacy can still be felt in Europe half a century later. Our guest today is Raquel Varela. She's a professor of history at the New University in Lisbon and the author of several books, including A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution. What was the nature of the Salazar-Caetano dictatorship that had ruled over Portugal ever since the 1920s? There is a debate on what represents Salazar regime. There are several approaches. We have kind of a left approach more connected with the tradition of the Communist Party pro-Soviet Union. These historians refer the regime of the Estado Novo as mainly a regime that is uh, highly conservative, fascist, anti-liberal, anti-parliament, and mostly a regime of, let's say, an ultra-conservative fraction of the bourgeoisie. The second approach, which is more attached to the politology that follows let's say, 
Samuel Huntington and uh, the politology that became very strong after the, the 90s, uh, which basically says that the big analysis that we can make of the regimes should not be focused on the state. And in this case, you can divide the world in very simple way in uh, liberal uh, democratic regimes and authoritarian regimes. Well, there is another analysis that um, Leon Trotsky has developed in this analysis of the fascism in Germany, which is very much influenced by the analysis of uh, Bonapartism by Marx in the 19th century. And the idea is this one. What is called a Bonapartist regime would be a kind of a fake arbitrary figure that uh, apparently is trying to organize the classes in conflict in a apparently neutral way, but in favor of the bourgeoisie. I would say that the, the Stado Novo is a Bonapartist regime. Salazar is this apparently neutral figure. But I shall underline that the difference between Bonapartism and fascism is not a question of violence, for example. Both regimes are deeply violent against the organized working classes. The main difference is when we refer the word fascism, we speak of a civil war against the working classes. And because of the threat of the revolution, the bourgeoisie cannot use the army in fascism to defeat, control the workers. So they use militias, they use a parallel power. And in Bonapartism, you can use the army because the leaderships of the working classes were already defeated or there is not a real threat of a immediately social revolution. In the period of the Estado Novo, which goes from the military dictatorship of 1926 until the end of the anti-colonial revolutions and the beginning of the revolution in the metropolis, the Carnation Revolution in 1974, what we have is mainly a Bonapartist regime. So this is a regime to create capitalism, modernization, to incorporate masses of peasants to the working classes under the prohibition of unions and political parties and under the so-called, in Portugal, industrial limitation. This means that you were guaranteed by the state a monopoly of a sector without competition. These are the three major goals of this Bonapartist modernization of the Estado Novo. Forbidden unions, forbidden political parties, allowed and regulate monopolies and forced labor in the colonies. So these three sectors, which is control the working classes in the metropolis, permit and sustain the concentration of capital and forced labor in the colonies that went until 1974. This is the characteristic of the Portuguese accumulation 
and the biggest and the long-lasting dictatorship in Europe. Despite its authoritarian nature, the Estado Novo had no problem securing an invitation to join NATO after the war. Portugal became one of the founding members in 1949. Pathé News reported on elections held that year without the slightest hint that they might be less than fully democratic. Portugal goes to the polls, with posters and placards adorning every street as the people of Lisbon cast their votes in the presidential election. The head of the cabinet, Dr. Salazar, himself took part in the voting, as did the president, Marshal Carmona, whose re-election proved his continued popularity. In 1955, NATO released a series of information films about its member states. The film about Portugal mostly took the form of an apolitical travelogue. Portugal, 400 miles of ocean breakers, last barrier to the grey waters of the Atlantic, rolling in to die amid the flying surf. Under this seawall, the Phoenicians and the Greeks built their settlements, and from here came the sailors that made the maritime power that developed into modern Portugal. NATO did find some room to discuss the country's political system, but like Pathé News, it was entirely uncritical of the regime. In the pavement cafes over wine and coffee, like anywhere else, there is talk of politics. After 30 years of struggle to bring his country out of crisis and debt, the man in the street makes the best use of his vote, for he knows only too well the value of stable government. This spirit can be seen in the respect shown towards the man who in 1928 began to steer his country towards its present stable economy, Prime Minister Salazar. For the progress achieved since those days of crisis has changed the very face of Portugal. The long-term pattern of highways and bridges, new dams and hydroelectric schemes bringing power to industry and agriculture. Yes, everywhere are those signs of national development which mark a country striding forward. As well as its African colonies, Portugal still controlled a few small territories in Asia, from Macau to East Timor. It also clung on to Goa after the rest of India gained its independence from Britain. In 1962, the Indian government decided to remove the Portuguese colony by force. There was rejoicing throughout India, consternation in Portugal and righteous indignation in many countries. Punjim and the little colony of which it is the capital have been Portuguese for 450 years. When the British left India, Goa stuck out like a sore thumb. Now it is part of the Republic of India, after just about the easiest conquest on record. The Portuguese abandoned their arms, knowing they could not make any show against the 30,000 invading troops. Antonio Salazar had ordered the commander in Goa to mount a suicidal last stand against the Indian army. When the commander refused, in order to save the lives of his men he was court-martialed on his return to Portugal. From the early 1960s, the Salazar regime had to fight against revolutionary anti-colonial movements in Guinea-Bissau, Angola and Mozambique. As those movements grew stronger, many officers began to wonder if they would be scapegoated for defeat in the same way as their colleague in Goa. What impact did the colonial wars in Africa have on Portugal itself? Well, 
Portugal will be entering in uh, the, the anti-colonial process in 1961 as the Sino-Soviet conflict and the beginning of big investments in Africa done, not the beginning, but the intensification of investments in Africa done by American and European countries, which want the petrol in Angola, the cotton in Angola, the other materials in uh, Mozambique, which were uh, important for this new uh, uh, new moment of capital investment. In this uh, context, the liberation movements have organized, deeply influenced by what has happened in anti-colonial processes, revolutions or organizations, as has happened in Ghana, Guinea-Conakry, in Argelia. All these countries have, uh, were an inspiration for uh, the liberation movements in Guinea, Angola, and Mozambique. In beginning of 1961, there was a strike of the forced labor of the cotton workers in forced labor regime in North Angola in Cotonang, which was a Belgian Portuguese capitals company that used forced labor, and the Portuguese army have answered. We using napalm, the same that was used by the American regime in Vietnam. Nobody knows exactly how many workers have died, but some figures say five to ten thousand workers. And there was a group called UPA have made a massacre of the white people in Angola against this massacre of the Portuguese army. And the tension began, and one month after the MPLA, the Movimento Popular de Libertação de Angola, the Angola Liberation Popular Movement that was influenced by the Soviet Union, decided to start the armed struggle. In uh, uh, Guinea, started in 1963, after a defeated strike of the dock workers, and in Mozambique, started in 1964, after also a strike of forced labor workers that came from uh, several parts in Mozambique. And I shall underline that there was a deep relation between Angola, Mozambique and South Africa, apartheid and Rhodesia, because workers are forced to go to the apartheid mines in South Africa. So what starts the, the armed struggle? The Portuguese army reacts. I shall underline that Portugal had 10 million people, 9 million and a half, and between 1961 and 1974, the colonial war, 1.2 million people were recruited to the colonial war. A huge part, uh, black people from these uh, regions, but a huge part from uh, Portugal itself. So practically all families except in the very high classes, had sons, nephews, cousins that went to the colonial war. 10,000 people died in the Portuguese army, 200,000 were injured, and figures calculated say 
probably 100,000 in former colonies were killed. This is has uh, made a huge impact in Portugal because uh, one and a half million workers escaped to France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, escaping both from poverty and colonial war. And also these countries in Europe wanted to recruit labor force to compete with their workers. Uh, in the because we were facing the reconstruction of the Second World War, and secondly, uh, the workers wanted to escape from the colonial war. Uh, at the same time, with the introduction of more uh, foreign investments in Portugal, for the first time, the population in rural countries was lower than the population living in an urban area. So this process is just completed in the 60s, and this population goes massively to the cities of Lisboa, Porto, and Setúbal, where they're going to work in big factories, most of them with Portuguese and foreign capital combined. In the colonies, the forced labor, although uh, officially abolished in 1961, continued until 1974 till the end of the colonial war and the anti-colonial revolutions. And when we achieve uh, the beginning of the 70s, Emilcar Cabral, a very special leader, I think not enough well-known, because he was uh, together with Ben Berg uh, from Morocco and with Che Guevara, he played a very important role in the 60s, an internationalist approach towards independence was not just based on national independence, but on socialist and internationalist approach. The following clip comes from an interview with Cabral for a British documentary. We think that um, all the time there still be colonies in Africa, Africa will not be really independent. We think that our people have the obligation to liberate our country, see, to contribute for the liberation of Africa. We think that uh, doing what we are doing, we are proving that we are Africans, we are men, and uh, we are conscious of our rights in the context of the story of our time. Angela Davis paid tribute to Cabral at a meeting in the US shortly after his assassination in 1973. Amilcar Cabral was ruthlessly assassinated by agents of Portuguese colonialism because he and his movement were becoming far too dangerous far too great a threat to Portuguese colonialism and to the imperialist hold over Africa in general. And of course the death of Cabral was a very serious setback for the national liberation movement. In the first place for the movement in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, but also for the national liberation movements throughout Africa, in Mozambique and Angola and Zimbabwe and throughout the continent where there continues to be 
colonialist domination. Yet, those of us who are involved in the global battle against imperialism know that such setbacks are only temporary. They are not permanent defeats because they cannot halt the tide of resistance. The liberation struggle in Guinea-Bissau continues to rage on and will ultimately defeat Portuguese colonialism. Cabral's movement intensified the struggle against Portuguese rule after his death. Within a few months, they were ready to declare independence. Portugal was virtually losing the war, was totally isolated from the international point of view. The number of deserters against the war was already 20% in the 70s. And uh, all institutions, uh, international institutions, including the United Nations, UNESCO, all of them, were in favor of the end of colonialism, although at the same time the companies in France, in England, in other countries sell guns to the Portuguese army. 40% of the budget was used in the colonial war in the late 60s and beginning of the 70s. So virtually the country was, people had no water, literally. So in Lisbon, a population had to, to in five kilometers from the center of Lisbon, you already had to bring a water by hand. No industrial process of bringing water to the people. This was this, the real situation in Portugal before the revolution. How did the armed forces movement or MFA take shape in response to the wars in Africa? There were captains. It's a kind of a middle rank officials. They are not generals, they are not soldiers. And they could understand that was impossible to win the war military. So they have decided themselves. First, they have organized in defense of some cooperative approach. But then, even when the state accepted their cooperative demands, they have decided to organize a coup d'etat to finish the colonial war. And in this coup d'etat, they have defended a program very vague of democratization and end of the war. So they start a conspiracy which involved around 200 officials in different types of an organization went for some um, very long uh, months until they have uh, decided to do the coup in April 25th or 1974. So these officials, they were mainly from Guinea, where the Portuguese army was heavily de- defeated and already Guinea have declared the independence before, uh, although not recognized by the Portuguese state, and also some in Mozambique and Angola. And they organized themselves in an extremely successful coup d'etat, which at the very beginning 
was a classical coup d'etat made by the army. This uh, military, they were not politically engaged or, uh, let's say, politically organized. Their goal was to end the colonial war. This was the main goal. But in the day they gave the coup d'etat, thousands of people came to the streets. We've already heard one of the songs used by the Armed Forces Movement as a signal over the radio. This is the second song they played to coordinate their plan, Grandola Villa Morena. Grandola Villa Morena Terra da fraternidade O povo é quem mais ordena Dentro de ti a cidade Dentro de ti a cidade O povo é quem mais ordena Terra da fraternidade Grandula Vila Grandola Vila Morena was the work of José Afonso, known to his fans as Zeca. Afonso had been jailed for his opposition to Salazar and Caetano. His song became the anthem of the Portuguese revolution. The coup d'etat was extremely successful. The regime did not know what was going to happen, not the classical spies of American embassy, etc. So the coup d'etat was a surprise for everyone around the world. So it was extremely well organized by Otelo Saraiva de Carvalho and around 200 members. And uh, they have controlled the main military communication and transport sectors and told to the people that they shall not leave their homes but people disobeyed massively. They went to the streets. They went to their to the places where they work. And suddenly, thousands of people were not just at the streets, embracing the military, making these wonderful photos with a, a carnation and other flowers, drinking coffee, the militaries without uh, guns. Play, the children were playing in these uh, army tanks and uh, so these incredible photos, everybody smiling, celebrating and everybody screaming end of the colonial world immediately. And as the regime has forbidden unions, although there were some unions organized but very small organized in, in the opposition, and uh, the parties were forbidden, although the Communist Party was organized and had around 3,000 cadres, a vanguard party of cadres, and a huge number of parties, mainly Maoist, but also some small Trotskyist organization, and also important, what you would say, uh, inspired by these uh, guerrillas of Latin America parties, Guevarisme, uh, so all together also around 3,000 cadres, most of them coming from the universities and the opposition against the colonial war, which had 
in the uh, young that would be mobilized to the world, the key center of organization. I shall underline that after Israel, Portugal was proportionally the country with more military incorporation in the entire world. So the, the colonial world was the key factor of radicalization and the development of Marxist intellectuals and leaderships in Portugal. And as there was no parties in legal parties and legal unions, there were legal unions, but not free unions, the people went to the streets and also to their places where they work. They went to the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses. They went to school, the teachers. They went to theaters, the actors. They went to factories. They went to headquarters of the companies. And when they arrived there, I'm telling the story like this because I've <laughs> highly studied this. So it's not just a way, a literary way. To counting, it is what really happened when they arrived in their workplace. They said, So, uh, what are we going to do? We are going to say that we are against the colonial war and we want elections now. But how we are going to do this? Well, we are going to elect our representatives. But for 48 years, we had no freedom of election, our representatives. So, we want them to be elected here. We vote here in front of everyone, and uh, these mandates have to be revocable if they don't accomplish what we have voted. And what has born immediately, in a very spontaneous way, as in most of the revolutions, was organization of dual power. So, suddenly... In the empty space of the unions, in the empty space of the political parties, although having a very important role, the huge number of political militants, was uh, workers' commissions, uh, workers' councils, and uh, after already two or three days, already neighborhoods' councils. So the workers' have uh, on the day of the 25th of April they have gone to the headquarters of the censorship state censorship of the headquarters of the journal of the regime the headquarters of the political police where workers were killed and they have destroyed and occupied these places immediately they have uh, opened the gates of the prisons where were political prisoners All of this happened on the 25th, 26th, and 27th of April and um, organized themselves in workers' organization. But this workers' organization immediately... Oh, and also they have uh, gone to the headquarters of the unions, the fascist unions, and uh, occupied them, most Communist Party members. And also in uh, all country, they have gone to the headquarters of the municipalities and occupy them. In many of them, electing a provisional commission, but at the same time, outside, in each neighborhood, electing a neighborhood commissions. These were the first incredible days, <laughs> beautiful days, 
where we saw that never so many people have decided so much in their lives. And this is one of the biggest revolution in history, uh, certainly. We're now going to hear some clips from a British news report on the opening weeks of the revolution. This was May Day in Lisbon, one week after the regime of Marcelo Caetano was destroyed in a military coup. An infectiously happy people celebrated the restoration of freedoms taken from them almost 50 years ago. 200,000 people took to the streets, strewing red carnations and dancing with the troops. A blaring chorus of car horns clashed with the chant, a united people will never be defeated. Censorship was at an end, freedom of speech restored, elections promised, and most important of all, the end of Portugal's colonial wars in Africa seemed at last to be an attainable goal. Sunday, the will of the people made itself evident. After five years of exile in Paris, law professor Mario Soares, leader of the Portuguese Socialist Party, returned home. 10,000 people filled the Praça do Rocio Square. A viúva e a filha do general Humberto Delgado. He was joined on the balcony by the widow of General Umberto Delgado, a would-be opponent of the old regime who was found murdered in 1966. Camaradas, viva a Viva! Viva o socialismo! Viva! Viva Portugal! Viva! The socialist leader, Mario Suarez, had been taught as a student by Alvaro Cunhal, who went on to lead the Portuguese Communist Party. Cunhal also returned to Portugal after the revolution and the two men became the dominant figures in the Portuguese left over the next year and a half. What was the nature of the new government that took power in Lisbon after the ouster of Caetano? First of all, there was created a kind of a junta, Junta de Salvação Nacional, National Salvation Junta, the name, which was trying to have the state intact to avoid the crisis of the state, the crisis of hegemony. But Spinola, a general, wanted to continue the political police in the colonies and wanted to achieve a situation of, let's say, more formal neocolonialism. But the MFR, the middle-rank officials were totally against this. They have answered that the solution was stop the war immediately. This has made immediately a division inside the MFA on the spinolist sector and the other sector, which was majority and one. Also, because of the workers' councils, commissions, in Portugal it's called commissions, the workers' councils, and uh, a huge number of strikes. The 1st of May was the first, 1st of May free in 48 years, had 2 million people in the streets, already with demands of social revolution, like minimum wage, eight hours of work, uh, resting on Saturday and Sunday, resting on night, being paid 
double or even more when you work at night, etc. All these demands were already one week after the revolution in the streets. And because of this, Marie Suarez, which, which was the lead of the Socialist Party, which was founded in Germany in the beginning of the 70s, was a vanguard party as the Communist Party, but even smaller, the Socialist Party, because the Socialists have been banned also during Stad Novo, never reached. So the only, for many years, the only opposition was the Communist Party and the Maoists. The Socialists were a minority. But Suarez had a big support of America and of the SPD in Germany. So um, important uh, PhDs, theses, and books were done about this. The biggest amount of money that was transferred from the SPD until the beginning of the 90s was to the Socialist Party during the Portuguese Revolution. So at the same time, I must underline that immediately there was a huge discussion in Spain of how to open Spain to avoid the what they call the contagious effect of the Portuguese Revolution to defeat Francoism. And in Greece, the coronel dictatorship fell down in July after the Portuguese Revolution, and the first newspapers, the free newspapers, are celebrating the Carnation Revolution. So what we have is the beginning of General, General Ford, the President of the United States, said at the time, we have the threat of a red Mediterranean because in Italy and France, the communist parties that didn't want to go to power expressed uh, huge votes in these uh, parties and huge votes in, let's say, anti-capitalist or a highly regulated capitalism in favor of workers' uh, project. So, in this context, Mari Suárez, leader of the Socialist Party, and Álvaro Cunhal, they returned from exile. They were both in exile. And they return and they are invited to do a government, the first government, which includes also the right-wing party that, because of the revolution, called themselves Social Democratic Party, which is very curious how even impact the revolution impact in the name of the parties. But this right-wing party that belongs to the uh, conservative parties in Europe, still today it's called Social Democratic. And the Social Democratic, traditional Social Democratic Party is called Socialist Party. They were all together in the party and the government and they have Spinola and Suarez have decided that they should have Cunhal party in the government in order to control the workers' movement. And so they have made the first government kind of breaking a taboo of the Cold War, which was to have the communist parties in the government. But hoping that this coalition would lead to the control of the social movement, which didn't happen. What were the main tendencies or differences of opinion that existed within the MFA itself? Oh, well, the revolution develops and radicalizes. At the top in 1975, the the national banks were expropriated because they were under workers' control. The big companies were under workers' control and the small companies were under self-management. More than 600 companies 
in uh, self-management and the big companies under workers' control. The hospitals were run by doctors, nurses, and technicians. Even the cleaning lady had a vote in a hospital. So this was uh, um, 3 million people among 10 million were involved in workers' commission protest strikes. This is an incredible figure. I think Paul Sweezy said this. I think, no, he said, but I think he's right, which is the Portuguese revolution is a kind of a 21st century revolution because there was already a huge cervix sector, a proletarianization of physicians, professors, technicians that played an incredible role in workers' councils. This all had a huge impact in the MFA and suddenly they divided showing the different projects that were in the society. So a part of the MFA was supporting the strategy of the Communist Party to divide the power of the state with Socialist Party. A part of the MFA was very engaged in the idea of popular power and dual power, and even with an idea of a left putsch, let's say a very uh, Gevarist idea, which was run by Hotel Saraiva de Carvalho, but deeply engaged with workers' commission, workers' neighborhoods, and dual power in the army. The Sovietization of the army in 75 is a clear process. And a part of the MFI, very small, went to very right-wing, and because there were two attempts of right-wing coups defeated during the revolution, two corning of attempts. And in this part of the MFI that was in supporting the popular power, there was part of the Communist Party officials. So the Communist Party leadership official was in favor of Yalta and post-Tam agreements and have supported the idea that Portugal was under NATO control, Angola was in dispute, so there should be control of workers' council. There was no supporting a revolutionary process in Portugal, but they were disputing the state to the Socialist Party. But a part of the Communist Party officials were more engaged in the idea of popular power. I shall also underline that the Communist Party, which had 3,000 members after one year, had 100,000, and the Socialist Party, which was almost in a taxi, had 80,000 members. 80. The extreme left would sell uh, thousands of weekly journals. There are many different extreme left parties. So we have an intensive politicization of practically the majority of the society. And this has a huge impact in the military because they divided themselves. The strategy of the Communist Party and the Socialist Party at the beginning was to be together in the state, divide the power with tensions, divide the power with tensions, which after the radicalization of the revolution in 75, they split. But until there, the idea was that together with MFA, they could uh, regulate, control, rebuild the state. Because this is the biggest question of the revolution. How to rebuild the state 
how to stop the, the crisis of the state, which could have just been done weakening the workers' councils and the, the workers' neighborhoods councils. We're going to hear some clips from another report by the same news crew that visited Portugal just after the revolution. They went back to the country in March 1975 to report on the political scene ahead of the elections for a constituent assembly. A spokesman for the Socialist Party accused the communists of seeking to dominate their left-wing rivals. His party wants unity of the left, but for socialism, not communism. The leadership fears being exploited by the communists, kept in alliance as long as they're useful, discarded if they become a threat. We know that the Communist Party will always want to dominate. I don't think it is whether to have the, the real power and uh, there will be some, some other parties, but uh, they are uh, satellized by, by the Communist Party. We refuse this because we think our people want to leave democracy, wants to leave the, 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 the liberties, the, the main liberties of expression, of information, of strike, etc. And we don't think that the uh, Communist Party is interested is really interested on this. Are you prepared for trouble? Yes, we are prepared. The reporter also spoke to a leader of the armed forces movement and asked about the political views within the army. Are they marching Portugal towards communism? There are so many kinds of communism at this moment in the world. It depends. Well, would you like it to become a communist state along the lines of Hungary? Or would you like it to become an independent communist state along the lines of Yugoslavia, for instance? Yes, for instance, why not? Yugoslavia? Yes, why not? What I want to know is the, the political colour of the army at this moment, of the armed forces movement. The political colour? Well, I would say it is a very socialist. The target would be something like between the Communist Party, Portuguese Communist Party, and the Socialism, and the Portuguese Socialist Party, not exactly that. But somewhere between the two? Yes, somewhere between the two. The final clips are from an interview with the Communist leader, Alvaro Cunhal. Should the MFA not hand back to the people the power to run their own country the way they want? O MFA pertence ao povo. The MFA belongs to the people. Não está, não é contra o povo. É uma emanação do próprio povo. The MFA is not against. Is not against the people. They come from the people. But the people have no say in who represents them on the Revolutionary Council. Tem, tem uma grande palavra a dizer porque no dia em que o nosso povo não queira os militares, os militares não ficam. The Portuguese people has actually a big work to say because on the day that they don't want the MFA any longer, they just won't have it. You just said that if people did not want the armed forces movement, it could be removed. How could people do that? Que o MFA ficava no ar. But the MFA would stay up in the air. Sem support. Without support. Does the Communist Party not exercise a power out of proportion with its support in the country? Uh, at the moment, they have a very strong influence on national politics. Se não podemos dizer muito forte, podemos dizer forte. O Dr. Cunhal says not very strong, but strong. In the election campaign, Mario Suarez of the Socialist Party 
denied that it was a choice between socialism and capitalism. Suarez presented it as a choice between democratic socialism and a communist-led one-party state. Whether or not this was a fair argument, it proved to be highly effective. The socialists won three times as many votes as the communist party. After a power struggle inside the army during autumn 1975, the radical left was marginalised and Suarez became prime minister. What impact did the revolution have upon Portugal's colonies? In the colonies, the impact was that immediately huge demonstrations, mainly of the extreme left, saying we don't want not even a single soldier to the colonies. These were what you could hear every day at the demonstrations. Nem mais um só soldado para as colonias. This is, uh, everybody knows this because this was the main demand. And at the same time, after the 25th of April in the colonies, I have found several strikes in railway workers, in uh, transport workers, in uh, food sectors, in Mozambique and Angola after the Portuguese Revolution. So the Portuguese Revolution and the strike movement had an impact in the strike movement in the colonies. Also, of course, the 25th of April, although the war officially continued in the colonies, the soldiers after this 25th of April refused practically to go on and fight. And the huge demonstration of the students and young workers against the colonies have imposed definitely the independence. So Guinea becomes independent already in 74. And after comes Mozambique and the last one, which gave much more quarrel between the Soviet Union, China and United States because it had petrol, was Angola, which became independent on the 11th of November of 1975. Could you tell us a little more about the reaction of the US and the major West European states to what was happening in Portugal? How did they seek to intervene over the course of 1974 that all support should be put it in the elections, national elections that took place on the 25th of April 1975, and all support in money and structures to the Socialist Party. So the idea of what we call a democratic counter-revolution. So not copying what has happened in Chile, because this would have spread the revolution to other countries in Europe, using the terror methods of Chile, but using the so-called Pacific transitions through above. This was tested in Portugal with the Socialist Party, brought to Spain with Moncloa Pacts, and then brought to Chile in the beginning of the 80s, Brazil and Argentina. So it was with Soares, There is a Doutrine Soares, which I have 
called the, the Swaj Doctrine, although the Americans don't admit it, of course. But, uh, for example, Carter was very clear on supporting this idea that uh, was very uh, important to support counter-democratic revolutions, and Portugal was the test for this. So all this process was done not bringing directly support from America, which had caused, there was a very anti-American feelings uh, rooted in this Portuguese society. Even some of them developed also by the dictatorship, the Salazar dictatorship, with their idea of rural autarcy. So this money and support was done through the Socialist Party in Germany. This is highly studied by several of my colleagues and also through Spain. So there was always a relation between Spain and Portugal. For example, the extreme right in Portugal, when they are obliged to leave the country because of the revolutionary struggle, they go to Madrid. Portugal definitely was the cause of the Spanish transition to democracy. I have no doubt about it. I made research about this as well as some of my Spanish colleagues, although in both countries we continue to have a nationalist historiography. This is undoubtable. Portugal had a huge impact on Greece. In my opinion, there is another impact of the Portuguese Revolution, which is the postpone of neoliberal approach. So I believe that Thatcher with the miners in 73, the strikes in England, all the process of the counter-cyclical measures against the crisis of the reconstruction of capitalism, the so-called oil strike, old uh, oil the crash strike, all these measures that had the name of neoliberalism in the 80s were tried to be imposed in Europe in the 70s and could not because of the political uprising in Portugal that was an example and an inspiration to all Southern Europe. And if the government would have tried to go further with neoliberal approaches, redundancies, uh, job cuts, could spread to the north of Europe and to the central of Europe. So I believe that we can say with our data, with our analysis, that Portugal Somehow the Portuguese revolution has postponed for 10 years the neoliberal turn in Europe that could be just done after the defeat of the miners and unfortunately with no revolutionary situation against the counter-cyclical measures of the crisis of 81-84 except in a very important country as Colin Barkin used to remember which was Poland, but it was an isolated revolution. Portugal was always an isolated revolution. That's why it was defeated. But it's, an, it's not an isolated revolution in the sense that it had a huge impact in the Mediterranean countries. In 2013, Euronews reported on the protests against austerity in Portugal. The demonstrators invoked the memory of the Carnation Revolution. Thousands of Portuguese have turned out to protest against austerity cuts. Gatherings like this have been held in more than 40 cities across the country. 
With the so-called troika of lenders in Lisbon for the seventh evaluation of the country's 78 billion euro bailout programme, the general message was enough is enough to the spending cuts. The fall in living standards and the rise in unemployment are ammunition for trade union leaders. This government has no political legitimacy, has no moral legitimacy, has no ethical legitimacy. Any visit by any minister is followed with protests and demands for the resignation of the government. The government has become the problem that prevents the solution. And those unhappy about the centre-right government's relentless austerity drive have found a novel way to protest. They hound politicians by singing a celebrated song from the 1974 Carnation Revolution. Along with that wider impact on the European scene, what would you say were the main legacies of the revolution for Portugal in subsequent decades and up to the present day indeed? The legacy of the revolution was that most of the people that have done the revolution had 20 and 30 years old in 1975, 74. So for the next 40 years, these people were alive. And while these people were alive and were the majority, they were strong enough to not allow the extreme right to exist in Portugal, but that is not to do with generation. I would say that is more to do with the world uh, context. But until the defeat of the miners and until the big changes of the 80s, which is before the Soviet Union, we had, uh, of course, a huge impact in a welfare state, wonderful health service, well, better education, leisure, some kind of social policies towards equality, which have survived, but I would say that they are deeply in crisis in the last uh, 20 years. The legacies are complex because some of them, they are contradictory. In a way, there are very important achievements on the welfare state and on the labor rights. The the problem of analyzing the consequences of a defeated revolution or of any revolution, I would say, is what is responsibility of revolution and what is responsibility of the counter-revolution? I would make myself this question, definitely. So we have... The revolution is defeated on the 25th of November of 1975 by a coup d'etat, highly supported by liberal democracies. And after that, what we have is a somehow regulated capitalism for a sector, an important sector of the working classes that goes until the 90s maybe to the older generation until 2008. After that, nobody or practically nobody is under protection. So, for example, definitely a legacy of the Portuguese revolution is this increased amount of rights and also political rights or political conscience. But at the same time, we know that, for example, from the point of view of memory, the 25th of April is the biggest party in Portugal. It's a national fete. 
and very celebrated among popular classes, popular masses. It's the day of Portugal, really. At the same time, we see how the country is so backward now. 47% of the people are officially poor. And uh, Portugal has become a place of deeply low wages, huge intensive and working time hours for everyone, even qualified workers. In the south, you have the workers from Nepal living in terrible conditions, working for British and Portuguese companies, staying here five years to get permission to go to Central Europe. So kind of a rotation of very low work. So we see the working classes cannot afford a house in the cities. They don't have a job. The education is extremely degraded. The health, national health services was destroyed. So this is, of course, not the legacy of the revolution. It's the legacy of the counter-revolution. And the legacy, I would say that the main idea is that the... Portugal is a small, semi-peripheral country with a backward bourgeoisie that made a backward country. And the moment that this country could give a place for people to live decently was when the working classes took their destinies in their own hands. And I think this is the most incredible thing to study, is how these people, totally outside of politics, maybe a lot of them conservative in their lives, maybe with ideas, very confused ideas, some of them quite bad ideas, suddenly involved in politics and transformed themselves while they'll transform the country. This is the most amazing process to be studied. And this, in my opinion, is our hope in the future, is how when people pick the country in their hands, how they reach to transform it, and also transform itself. A sombra do mazinheira Que já não sabia a idade Many thanks to Raquel Varela for that account of the Portuguese Revolution. Her book, A People's History of the Portuguese Revolution, is available from Pluto Press.